Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark. And I'm Charlene. And this week we are back in the closet. Yep, the sound quality was a lot better, so here we are. But we're instead of sitting on the floor, which was really uncomfortable after a while, we are sitting in camping chairs, which is better so far. We'll see how it goes. So what are we talking about this week? Avatar The Last Airbender, you know, because everyone is at home and watching Netflix all the time, and so we finally watched it. Yep, along with everybody else. Yep. And then we finished that, and we realized that The Legend of Korra, the sequel series, is not on Netflix, and we cancelled our Prime membership, so we have not watched that. So we're only talking about Avatar this week. We may do Legend of Korra at a later date if we watch it and think it's worth talking about. Yep, which I think we probably will. I understand there's good LGBT representation in it and stuff like that, so, you know, sounds like a us thing. Yeah, (laughs) that's it. That's all it takes. I mean, we're pretty big fans of representation, so... As you might have guessed, we'll be spoiling all three seasons of Avatar The Last Airbender. If we have any other spoiler warnings or content warnings, maybe we won't have content warnings for a kid's show this time. You never know. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, we'll drop those in here. We're pretty light on spoiler warnings this week. We have a bit of conversation about Steven Universe where we're just sort of comparing the two shows. There is also a minor spoiler for something that happens in Pulp Fiction. So... That's the thing. It's in the fun facts at the end, you know, if you're just holding out to watch that. It's a great film. You can see it. There aren't really any content warnings this week. Okay. And back to the past. Welcome back. Do you think we had content warnings? I don't know. It's always hard to tell where we're going to go with this stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. I feel like it's your turn to do the plot summary. It probably is. I haven't done them in a while. We'll start off with a brief summary of what happens in Avatar The Last Airbender. It follows mainly Aang, who is the Avatar, Katara, and Sokka. And then over the way, they pick up more people. In this world, there are four nations. There's Earth, Air, Fire, and Water nations. And each of those domains have some set of the population who are able to manipulate the element of that nation. There is an avatar born every generation. Like, when one dies, another one is born. And they are born, like, kind of in a cycle through the nations. So one will be an airbender, like Aang. And after that, there'll be a waterbender, and then an earthbender, and then a firebender, and then back to air. So in the setup for the show, Aang is from the airbending community, but he's been frozen in ice for a hundred years, and everyone thought that the Avatar was gone. And right around the time that the last Avatar died, the Fire Nation attacked all the other nations and has been waging a war of essentially sort of trying to colonize all of the other nations and dominate them through military supremacy. And the other nations are trying to hold out with varying levels of success, but they'd kind of given up on the Avatar helping them. Um, One of the very first things that happened when uh, the war started actually was that the the Fire Nation started by wiping out the airbenders, and this happened like around the same time as Aang left and ended up getting frozen in ice. So when he comes back and starts the story, there are no other air nomads. And the, everyone he knew has been destroyed by the Fire Nation. And the show follows him and a couple of people from the Water Tribe, from the Southern Water Tribe, as they try to help Aang learn the other elements so that he can stand up to the Fire Nation and stop the war. So over time, in this attempt to try and get Aang sort of up to speed and ready to fulfill his destiny to bring the nations together, um, they ended up collecting like people from other nations, even eventually someone from the Fire Nation toward the end who had originally been an antagonist. 
So I think that about summarizes the show. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to talk about in this show. I think that there's some more of it that is very much on the surface. With, for example, Steven Universe, when we were talking about that, there's a lot to talk about and a lot of it is sort of there if you look for it. Um, I think that Avatar is a bit more explicit with a lot of what it does. I would agree, definitely. Like, Steven Universe is one of those shows we were talking about, like, this is a kid's show, but it's really getting to grips with a lot of, like, totalitarian caste system stuff and colonial and exploitive mentality. And Avatar deals with a lot of the same things, but as you say, you don't have to look for it. Like, they're very clear with it. And I think that's probably really valuable because the audience is kids. And while the audience is also kids for Steven Universe... I think that you can see that a little bit more effectively in Avatar. I think that in Steam Universe, the analogies are concealed a little bit more. Like it's, you know, alien races representing certain things rather than this group of people over here, which are clearly this society. Mm -hmm. We can get a bit more into that. But I think that um, there's probably a couple of things that will won't spend as much time on as we might have done just because, I mean, it's more obvious. Sure. They, um, it's very on the nose, and so there's not a whole lot of unpacking to do. Yeah. I think that um, Avatar is much much more directly aware that it's a kid's show than, say, Steven Universe, where you do get some stuff that like is harder to watch or deals with some more difficult subject matter in a very upfront way, whereas Avatar sort of works around it. There are some huge battles of wars and things, but they never really address anyone dying within the timeline of the show. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting in some ways that directness can be even more uncomfortable in a certain way with Avatar, like the conversations about you know, Aang's very like deeply held belief that it's never the right call to kill somebody. Like There's always another option, and that comes in large part from his his uh, upbringing at the monastery and like you know having been trained as a monk but it also even if it is because of that it's still something that he very much tries to get other people to understand that like killing someone's not always the answer and it hurts you just as much as it hurts well and that it hurts you as well as the other person it's interesting because i think that that really only comes in i think that already only comes in as a really explicit message in like the last half of season three and it's sort of not addressed that he hasn't thought about this before, because he's already gone to try and defeat the Fire Lord once, at the point when Zuko's like, well, if you're not going to kill people, then what are you going to do when you face the Fire Lord? And Aang's like, huh, hadn't thought about it. Like, he had, if not for the fact that his plan had been foiled, they had gone into the Fire Nation to fight the Fire Lord, and he hadn't thought this through. And also, how many people does Aang think died in the battle into that? Like, mm-hmm. if you topple a battlement entirely that's full of people, some of those people will die. You don't see any of it on screen, and we're allowed to forget about it a little bit. Yeah, and I do I do think that was an interesting choice with the show that I think does kind of distinguish it a little bit from something that's t- dealing with some similar things, like Steven Universe, where, like, the aftermath of war is very prominent. It's a- analogized with, like, the Shattered Gems and the... the crystal monsters that are you later find out like that's essentially they're zombies basically or like wounded veterans who have lost their minds and like it's very clearly like this is the price of war people are destroyed people are people die or effectively die in a war that is what happens and you can't run away from that and you can't pretend it's not a thing because it is a thing like it doesn't run away it does 
kind of conceal it a little bit, as you say, through, like, the analogy of, like, they're aliens and it's not bodies, you know, it's not mangled corpses, it's shattered gems and things like that. But it is monstrous and it is horrible and it is consequences that do not just go away. In fact, they resurge thousands and thousands of years after the fact. Yeah. Whereas with Avatar, as you say, like, it's very out of sight, out of mind, the costs of war and the costs of violence, even though we perennially have Aang making comments about not wanting to hurt other people, being so deeply disturbed when he goes into the Avatar state to defend the North Water Tribe and is a violent presence in that that turns the tide of battle. He's deeply upset by that and his capacity for violence, but you don't see... You see him as, like, what's the word for, like, Godzilla and kaiju? In that he's basically a kaiju. Like, he's not a person anymore. He's this big monster thing that's destroying small things that are, you know, the details are obscured because they've become background in a way. You know what I mean? And the background of him as a vegetarian and things like that, of him not wanting to be a violent presence in the world. Right. And I, I do appreciate the way that the vegetarianism is worked in as a, like a a side note sort of thing. It's not blood... The, the viewer isn't bludgeoned with it in any awkwardness. Like, it comes up in a very natural way a few times. I think and it's consistent it. with his character, which yeah. I think is very well done. But with the killing people thing, like... I mean, we can look over it a little bit with them sort of sweeping it under the rug with the kaiju water thing state but i mean in that scene we lose like the major villain for that season of admiral khan mm-hmm. or whatever his name is, and is it khan? So. Whatever. where he almost dies off screen like he's pulled into the water and then we never see him again and we're just like i guess guess he's gone then like you sort of half wonder if he's going to crop back up later but yeah no at the point at which ang is leading a huge army into the middle of the fire nation like Claiming that you're entirely against people dying is questionable. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that, like, Charlie Problem stuff we've talked about before and how people have different ways in terms of brain areas that are engaged, depending on, like, the kind of violence or violence situation is being theorized about. And it's like, if it is one in which you physically stab somebody, you're way more hesitant to say you would do it even if it was a case of like it would keep anyone else from ever dying violently or whatever like that like because you viscerally you know have the emotional response of like oh well, i don't want to do that thing but when it comes to letting bad things happen where it's your inaction that results in people getting hurt people are a lot more willing to do that it's a lot easier for them to abstract themselves from like the emotional dimension of it and abstract themselves from really understanding or like engaging on an emotional level with those costs of like yeah you know people are generally a lot it's a lot easier for people generally to imagine letting someone die because they didn't do something about it than they are actively killing them yeah but i think i i just think it's noteworthy because i think it's interesting that it's a kids show so they don't address this stuff but that it a creates a slight disconnect with the character as a logical figure mm-hmm. and also that it means that you're not talking about the cost of what's happening there um the cost is oh no our entire army will be taken as prisoners of war mm-hmm. which is bad mm-hmm. but like you're not reckoning with the fact that some of those people died in that mm-hmm. But I don't think that it's a consistency issue as far as the character, because Aang is like 12 or something like that. And even though he's been raised on these monastic 
nonviolent principles and of, it seems like, perspectives of kind of letting the world be itself and not interfering with things too much, redirecting things more than anything else than, rather than imposing your will on it. That makes sense, but he's also a child, and so you're going to see inconsistency in how that is actually executed in practice. Yeah. Um, so, like, he's he's vegetarian. That seems to be something that he's very consistent with, but he's also 12, and, like, he gets emotional, and he gets angry, and he gets defensive, but he also sometimes has this very mature, philosophically informed perspective on actively killing people, even if it seems like it's in the service of a greater good. Yeah, that's fair. One of the darker things that's raised is the bloodbending ability, I think. Mm -hmm. That's certainly one of the creepier things that we see in this show. Yeah, I agree. And I would consider it a form of violence, definitely, um, given the way that it's used and yeah, things like that. Like it, it seems like it's probably at least mechanically related to healing, in that you're manipulating... Mm aspects of the body in a way that you want it to do and it seems like the healing one is more like with what the body wants as opposed to bloodbending which is more you imposing your will on the body yeah like there's definitely some serious problems with consent there yeah i mean i think that that's um i think that bloodbending a i mean it does help explain how healing works i guess i hadn't really thought about that it does answer the question of well if you can bend water can you bend all fluids because you do that, like, that's certainly something my mind had gone to at one point when we were watching the show. So it's interesting that they did answer that. It's a thing that Katara does use a couple of times after swearing that she won't use it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because she never talks to anyone about it. Mm -hmm. Like, she doesn't share the ability with Aang, and you can't imagine Aang would take well to it. No. But I think even Zuko sees her do it, and there's not even a conversation about what the fuck was that? I've never seen anyone do something like that before. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting how they skirt around that as well. Yeah, I definitely think the way that they handle that very much conveys how taboo of a thing that is. By Katara's reaction when the Southern Water Tribe woman shows it to her, her horror and her swearing she would never do it, and also the woman's clear comprehension of how abhorrent it is, and she's very much kind of gone to this, like, well, I'm no, like, sinking to their level type of thing, like, by any means necessary kind of a mentality at that point because of the torture that she'd experienced. And is just, like, in a similar way to Jet, wants to just pass on her toxic idea and perspective that any means necessary are valid in the face of what the Fire Nation has done. Like, it doesn't matter how bad I am, they're worse. And, like, so she finds it validating herself when Katara uses it. And she's like, ha, see, I'm right that yeah. this is a useful thing and it'll be valuable for you because the Fire Nation are terrible. And I've contributed something to the world, as disgusting as what I've contributed is. But I think Zuko sees how fucked up it is but he also i don't think he feels like he has any room to throw stones as far as people making cruel errors in judgment or being violent to other people in ways that are ultimately unjust because i think he knows he has no legs to stand on as far as that given his history persecuting ang for political reasons and generally being the heir of the fire nation and supporting that war 
even if he didn't really understand fully what was being, or didn't agree fully with the way that they wanted to perpetrate the war. Because that was the whole thing he was disagreeing with, was we shouldn't be using our people as cannon fodder. But yeah, I think part of why Zuko doesn't call her on it or anything is because I think he doesn't think, first of all, he's trying to become closer to her, not drive her away from him. And also I think he feels like he has no leg to stand on as far as criticizing anyone else being cruel and fucked up. But it's noteworthy that Zuko is in that position of not telling her that it's a good thing either. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the fact that she doesn't tell anyone else in the party anything about what was really going on that night, I guess, Mm -hmm. is interesting. To clarify in the scene that we're talking about, Katara find uh, Zuko helps Katara find the Fire Nation brigade that killed her mother, and she's trying to find the specific guy that killed her mom, and it should be the leader of this group. She c- takes control of that man's body with bloodbending only to recognize that he's not the same person she saw as a child who killed her mom, and so realized she's done this horrific violation of like his body and he's not even the person who perpetrated her mother's murder. They do end up finding that guy, and she does not end up killing him. But it is mainly because she can't bear she cannot forgive him, but she also doesn't want to murder him. Um, yeah. So just so that you have some context for that conversation. There's some similarities with that and some of the other sort of special bending that you see. Because mm-hmm. there's a few things where some interesting questions are answered by providing new skills, but in a way that keeps them secret. So, mm-hmm. like, Toph figures out how to do metal bending, which was very much an issue I had in the first season of two of the show, was that you had all these people who could do rock bending, but were stymied by certain types of earth, which, by all reasons, should work the same way, or very similar way. So having there be an explanation of, oh, with the right understanding of a different substance, you can still do it. Yeah, I agree. And I think a big part of that is assumptions and, like, institutional ideas of what is and isn't possible. So there are... Um, Which is perhaps a little heavy-handed with Toph as a uh, message. Definitely. Considering that she is, like, the one member of the group who is blind, and that is an important aspect of, like, her experience in the group in that, like, it causes problems for her. It also seems to protect her from making certain assumptions and jumping to certain conclusions and just gives her a somewhat different perspective on the world because she's literally perceiving it differently. I think it can be a little heavy-handed there in that because she's literally perceiving the world through her earthbending senses, she is able to see it more clearly in terms of what is and isn't possible with earthbending, as opposed to sighted earthbenders who are presumably going by only what their instructors have told them is and isn't feasible. Well, I meant more from a perspective of her going beyond the assumptions of what is possible for someone mm-hmm. with the assumptions that people make about her because she's blind and trying oh, sure. to shield her. Yeah, so. definitely. I also think that the the different kinds of metal bending are also, or the different kind, those different types of bending that we see sort of discovered or revealed through the show that do not appear to be common knowledge by most practitioners do seem to be an illustration of people being limited by sort of the status quo or like institutions of education and the experience of the people who are teaching them. Um, You know, everyone knows you can't bend metal. Everyone knows you only learn 
disciplines from people within your own school. We know that Iroh, in observing the waterbenders, figures out a new firebending technique by absorbing some of the wisdom in their understanding of the elements. And he's able to redirect lightning, one of the most dangerous aspects of firebending, by using principles of waterbending. And that's because he's broken out of the assumptions that other schools have nothing to teach him as a firebender. Yeah. Um, similar with Toph, she's questioning this idea of, like, in a desperate situation, she does trust her senses over what she quote-unquote knows to realize that you can actually bend earth. It's more complicated, but you can do it. And similar with bloodbending, the woman who figures that out and teaches it to Katara figures it out in a desperate situation where she's being held in a cage in a dry environment and the only water around is in actual living creatures, um, where it's desperation that's driven her to think outside the box um, and uh, grasp at whatever might work, no matter how crazy it seems like it might be. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that those discoveries aren't... I I understand why Katara is not sharing bloodbending with everyone that she comes across. The fact that Toph never tries to teach Aang how to metal bend is interesting. And also, like, I'm fairly sure that there's at some point a time when Boomy's around as well. And, I mean, if you look at how powerful of a bender Boomy is, like, if he could do metal bending as well, like... Mm-hmm. But it's that sort of keeping it finished It's interesting, because, like, I don't know that... I don't know that they don't. It might just be off screen. Aang certainly does know that Toph can metal bend. He sees her do it. But she does say he has a lot to learn with earthbending. Like, he's still yeah. not as proficient with it as she is. And so, as it is more complicated even for her who's recently figured it out that may just be a thing that she may have just decided he's not ready for like as his teacher with Bumi, it's not as clear but maybe i mean we don't see that maybe it happens off screen you know it's not necessarily relevant to the plot for him to learn it from her but yeah there is an interesting through line about i mean to say that it's knowledge is power is perhaps reductive but like the way that we're shown knowledge being kept in various ways, whether as like secrets or as ways to maintain your own power is interesting. Because, I mean, Toph not sharing that with other people means that she has a one-up on everyone else. They're going to keep putting her in metal cages and then she's going to walk out of them because... Yeah. But, I mean, something like Eero's choice to tell the Fire Nation that he's killed the last dragon, there aren't any more dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, and not share his ability to redirect lightning or the knowledge that he gained from the dragons, but to keep that to himself instead, even before he's decided, he's sort of turned away from the militaristic goals of the Fire Nation. I think it's interesting. It is, and especially coupled with the episode with the buried library, where you have this Keeper of Knowledge owl spirit thing that's very offended by the way that humans use knowledge that they yeah. seek in that place, where he's like, why are, you know, humans only come here to try and be violent against other humans to use knowledge in a way that hurts other people and, you know, or, or, um, aggrandizes them in some way, you know, it's for their own personal gain and not for the pure love and appreciation and respect for knowledge and what it can do to better the world. And that coupled with the fact that we're seeing these dangerous forms of knowledge being held back by people that I think, the show is trying to indicate have good judgment. Yeah. Is, and like the same thing with the spirit owl thing of like, 
he's guarding this knowledge to keep it out of the hands of people who would misuse it. And that's the same thing that we see happening with Katara, with Bloodbending and Iroh, and Toph to a certain extent. Although with Toph, I could see it being a somewhat more selfish and uh, like yeah. defensive move of like, people keep trying to lock me up because I'm blind and fuck those guys. I'm not going to let them know how ineffective those methods are because then this is my ace up my sleeve. Yeah. Just to make a side note for one second, actually that is one person who is almost explicitly killed off is the guy that they go to the library with who chooses to stay behind as it's filling with sand so that he can read slightly more of a book. I'm not I don't know. I read that as he is the only one who was there for the reasons that the spirit owl actually accepts people there and that he would have just joined the owl spirit and the other like animal spirits that run mm. that place and just maybe become a spirit himself or maybe just live there and or just die of presumably thirst in a few days but like that he was joining yeah, there might be food there we don't know. we don't know but magical I, food i didn't necessarily read it as like he definitely just suffocates yeah. by, of sand because he actually is spiritually aligned with what the owl values in somebody a person who seeks knowledge for its own sake yeah okay that's fair point withdrawn hmm. i mean he might be dead we don't know <laughs> it's very unclear i think it's interesting that they also tie in the sort of environmental impacts of things. It's sometimes mildly infuriating the way that it's done. But, uh, I mean, obviously, Sozin's Comet is a large storytelling device throughout of it, it where they're going to be so powerful at this point. They being the Fire Nation. Yeah. The Day of Black Sun, I quite liked how that was done. I did perhaps sit, as you can attest, screaming at the TV during the whole section about the full moon at the Northern Water Tribe, where... The water tribe is blocked in by the Fire Nation, who are sitting outside waiting for the full moon to be over, and mm -hmm. their decision is to sit and just wait, do nothing, at the point at which they're strongest, and they know they will be attacked the next day, like, they, they don't do anything. That was annoying. Anyway. No, it's fair, and I think that part of that is an illustration of the different perspectives of the different groups, so the Fire Nation is a group that's more prone to attacking and being aggressive and pushing their advantage, whereas yeah. the Fire Nation, or the Fire Nation, whereas the Water Tribe is more focused on defending themselves and their people and are, like, their goal isn't to necessarily kill them. But given the Fire Nation um, fleet was there already, like, I feel like at least, like, pushing them out really fucking far to sea might have been a good idea. Yeah. I mean, even if it's just lift all the ships up onto ice blocks so that all you have to worry about is troops and the ships are useless. Or build up your defenses. But they instead select a few people to go and be spies. Spies who then wait until the following day to do anything. And also aren't vendors. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, no, they definitely don't seem to make full use of that advantage. As you say, like, the building up the defenses at least would have been a sensible thing to do, given that we do see that they use ice as a defensive mechanism and things like that to make, like, they do have an ice wall. Like, they could do more with that during the full moon if they wanted to. Yeah. Do something more similar to, like, Bossing Say, where you have, like, rings of ice and, like, it's a whole thing to get through to where the people actually are, but they don't do that. Yeah. I can understand why you're frustrated with that. That's just my minor rant. I did feel like some of the commentary on like the environmental impact of 
like the Fire Nation in particular and like industrialization. Mm. Um, it happened and it was a good thing that it's addressed, but it seems a little afterthought-ish the way that it's done, where it's sort of like a very special episode type of thing, you know, of like the nature spirits are mad because we've been horrible and these people are starving and can't fish because the pollution. Like, I know there's more than one like that. Yeah. But, and I think, you know, part of it probably is because it is aimed at children and you want the message to be very clear and you also don't want it to take over the entire show. But it, it did read a little very special episode, but I'm glad they do engage with it. They they do talk about it. I think that it does come up a few other times, but in less obvious ways. Um, One of the more obvious ones is that as a representation of the Fire Nation as burning the land... Mm -hmm. Um, and sort of destroying that side of things. Um, I mean, obviously you have in the final, in the finale, you have the Fire Lord slash Phoenix King on the front of his giant blimp. Yeah. Nothing is as scary as a blimp. So they're like raining down this huge gout of flame. Gout is one of those words where like now it means like a lot, but like originally it meant like a trickle. And I learned about that, and now it always seems ridiculous whenever anyone uses it, because they always use it as, like, gushing things of whatever. And I know that, like, in apparently at one point, I mean, it's one of those, like, at this point, it pretty much means what you think it I means. mean, I, language evolves. Yeah, um, But I, I didn't know that one, so I'll go and peruse the webpage on it for you. <laughs> yeah, peruse is another one, I, which I'm I know is the joke, but I just I wanted to, to tell you, because now I'm always like, huh, that kind of means a trickle of fire, and that's not what happens. Right. But no, I know what you mean. Like, you know, yeah, they're, they're basically pouring giant things of flame. They are literally burning the land. Yeah. Um. So, I, yeah, I, I think there is a little bit more in there. We sort of mentioned a bit about how taking on information from others that have been excluded from your own tribe has been helpful. I mean, very notably is Iroh learning lightning maneuvering by... Talk uh, like working with the water tribes, and I think that there is a larger overall theme throughout of just the importance of diverse perspectives. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's evident to some degree in the fact that the Avatar is literally a combination of the four elements, and that by the time that they get to the final battle, their party does include a member of each nation. Mm-hmm. But I think that there are some other interesting ones that appear throughout. Yeah, I definitely agree, and I think it's important to note that it's not just um, the value of perspectives outside of your community and, like, the groups that you are raised with or whatever, because it's, first of all, with Iroh, that's not, you know, working with the waterbending uh, community. That was him observing the talents and abilities of his enemies because he was a general for the Fire Nation and presumably his main encounters with waterbenders was on the other side of a battle. But also that these valuable perspectives aren't even coming from other humans. A lot of the time, like the most powerful and competent benders were the first benders who seemed to universally be animals and incredibly sentient animals, you know, as sentient as people, if not more intelligent, it's hard to say. We find out that the first firebenders were dragons, the first airbenders were the flying bison, the first earthbenders were they mole badger moles? I think they're badger moles. It's un- and the first water bender is the moon, which isn't an animal, but is still a non human sentient presence. It's a spirit. 
It's a spirit. The moon spirit is a thing. Yeah. Point being, these are non-human perspectives. And then Aang ultimately decides what to do with the Fire Lord by learning from another spirit, because he's the bridge between human and spirit worlds. He learns from this turtle spirit entity that's an island. Is that a spirit? I think it's just a really old animal. It might be. It's the turtle lion. Yeah, it is lion a giant turtle. Tur- uh, yeah, it is a giant turtle lion. It might be a spirit. It might be an animal. Point being, it's not a human who has this great knowledge of like the before times, like before bending was a thing, and before they had avatars, they had this ability of manipulating spirit that he learns from that sentience. Which, if you want to talk about a talent that could be misused. Yeah, yeah. And it makes sense that that creature would trust Aang with it, because Aang is an avatar and has lifetimes upon lifetimes of wisdom and experience on how to handle power in a responsible and pro-social way. I mean, it's interesting talking about diverse perspectives, that when he's trying to work out what to do about the Fire Lord, he goes to talk to the previous avatars through the spirit state. Mm -hmm. And... He gets some very different answers and interprets them all in very much the same way, which isn't actually what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Like, he comes away with the conclusion that they're all saying that I've got to kill the Fire Lord, when really what they've all, got to, all saying is, you've got to make a decision. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what your decision is, but if you go into it half-cocked, that's the mm-hmm. problem. Which he then does, and it does cause problems, and then yeah. really is just bailed out by magical avatar state. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, because he got hit in the back with a rock, mm-hmm. which is how you fix chakras. Apparently. Yeah, and it is interesting that he can't get away from his own perspective when he's consulting the past avatars, because that's the problem. He's getting all of these messages that everyone is saying he has to kill the Fire Lord. He's opposed to doing that, but he feels like everyone's telling him to do that. So even when he's consulting himself, he only hears that gotten so entrenched in this idea that no one is on his side of not killing the fire lord um when as you say no they're saying it's that you need to be decisive like that's what they keep saying and it's it's more there no one ever none of the other past avatars are saying gotta kill the fire lord (laughs) that's not what they say um there's like you have to know what the hell you're going in this to do so have you considered murder (laughs) i think the closest one is um the kiyoshi one Who's like, I mean, I, I killed that guy. And Nang's like, well, no, I mean, you just set the scenario up in which he died. And she's like, it, it's the same thing. like. Yeah. Well, and I, and I can understand her taking that stance because she could have saved him. I mean, she's an airbender as well as an earthbender and a fire... I mean, she was an avatar, so she had control of all of the elements. She could have saved him if she wanted to. She didn't. She let him be killed by his own ignorance and aggressiveness. But I could see, you know, not seeing the difference, especially if you are in... Especially if you recognize that inaction is just as powerful as action, which it does seem like the avatars do. Um, Roku laments his inaction as much as his actions in many ways more than his actions because he knows his position with the Fire King or the Fire Lord while he was alive might have, had he been more assertive, might have prevented the war or might have thwarted it early, but he didn't act. And, you know, he knows that he's as much to blame for not doing something as he is for the things he did. Yeah. 
I think one of the most notable points when you see the application of diverse perspectives is with, um, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, where we see Katara going after her mother's killer, where you have Zuko presents it as a, we can go kill this guy, and she's like, yes. And then Aang is coming in with the killing people is not the right answer. And it sets it up in a position where she could very easily come away from that, having either gone, no, fuck that guy, he deserves to die. They didn't, partially because it's a kid's ship. Or coming away from it going, oh, Aang is right, I need to not kill him and I need to forgive him. The choice to have her sort of reach a middle ground, where she's like, I mean, I shouldn't kill him, but fuck that guy. Mm -hmm. Where she says she's just not there yet on the forgiveness. Yeah. And I, I do appreciate that they do that because it is very important to validate people's feelings and that, you know, you're not a bad person because you can't forgive someone for doing something grievous to you. And that doesn't mean you won't ever forgive them, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you're horrible or whatever. Those are valid feelings, you know? Yeah. It's not reasonable to judge someone harshly for having a hard time letting go of a really deep pain that is still affecting them. I think one of the other places that we see the benefit of bringing together different perspectives in a potentially problematic way is the White Lotus Society. Yeah, definitely. Well, that does seem to be like the one way in this world during the war that you still have an exchange of ideas and a situation in which there's mutual respect across groups. Yeah. But it's in a very elitist, very gatekept way in that we the, the members we know about at least are... The king of Amashu, so king of one of the earthbending nations. The previous heir of the to the Fire Lord, Iroh, who is now a, a general, and he's exiled, but it, like it's clear he's been part of the White Lotus group for a long time. Um, so again, royalty, another high-ranking military officer in the Fire Nation, who has since deserted, but still, again, someone who, with a lot of prestige at one point and like opportunity to have met some of these people. The Firebender Nation Swordmaster, who again is very renowned, and the uh, the Northern Water Tribes Bending Master. So these are all elites who are represented there. There was that like random guy in that tavern or whatever who was playing Pie Show that Iroh meets. Yeah. Who seems to like be connected to that as well. So there's some indication that maybe there are uh, there are some levels of the White Lotus Society that aren't just super powerful elites, but it's also not clear how that whole system works. Like, it might be sort of a shadowy conspiracy organization sort of pulling strings and not terribly involving of other levels of society. Like, it's it's not clear. Yeah, I think that they are all men. Did you say that already? I didn't, but yes. I I know I mentioned that before we talked about the podcast, uh, or talked on the podcast, but yeah, they're all men. We don't see any women playing pie show in general, which seems to be the way they meet each other and yeah. and signal each other. I think it's interesting that Sokka gets invited to it, mm -hmm. um, or at least that seems to be what's going on. If we can't edit it out, Shadow is playing with a cat toy in here, and uh, that's what the rattling noise is. As he's younger, but I think part of it is that the Fire Nation Swordmaster has come to the conclusion, like, yes, you're a member of the Water Tribe, but you're here and able to work across that and don't care about these distinctions. And I think that that's a big part of it. It just occurred to me that I'm sure, of course, that the White Lotus has a meaning of some sort. So I'm going to trust lotusflowermeaning.net. Mm. Well, they the whole code for getting in is uh, like about valuing knowledge. 
So I would assume it's something related to that. Uh, in Buddhism, the different colors of the lotus are associated with different stages of the spiritual journey. For instance, a lotus of blue symbolizes someone who has started their spiritual journey by leaving the concept of self behind. The pink is the one reserved for enlightenment of the highest order and is associated with the highest deity, the Buddha. The white lotus flower, on the other hand, sits at a stage between these two and is associated with the state of Bodhi, that of becoming uh. awakened to the wonders of it all. Okay. That's interesting, because a bodhisattva is someone who has achieved enlightenment, but decided not to, but has decided to continue being reborn anyway to help other people achieve enlightenment. Hmm. So that that is very interesting. It does make sense in this context, because it is that wonder of it all that is central to the White Lotus, and that, that totally is consistent with them viewing knowledge as having no border, no clan, no affiliation, and presumably no class. But that's less clear. I think that that's really told through Iroh as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that you have this knowledge that I'm ignorant to. Um, because oh, about Bodhisattva? Yeah. Because he has done the thing where he goes and is a general and everything and is retired from the military, but is still going around on warships with Zuko to help Zuko find his path. Mm -hmm. And like... In a very much a sort of spiritual, what is your destiny sort of a way. Mm -hmm. so. And helping Zuko, in a, again, a very bodhisattva kind of way, helping Zuko see that his preconceived ideas of what the world means and what his destiny is and what's important need to be examined and questioned. And he needs to let go of that, that set of ideas to really be free and understand what's actually important, which is his own internal destiny and... and sense of himself yeah i think that this that that leads in fairly well to another conversation that we wanted to have which is about parenting and mentoring sure yeah this is a show about a bunch of 12 to 16 year olds who save the world so there aren't a lot of parents around because parents tend to frown on that um in fact the one main character whose parents are on the scene in a complete capacity are toffs and they frown on that so yeah they are, in fact, very opposed to her out in the world trying to help save it and uh, send bounty hunters to try and capture her and bring her back home. To which she says, no. I, I want someone to make the uh, tough remix of Parents Just Don't Understand. That'd be amazing. Wow. <laughs> no? Sure. I think it'd be great. I'm not going to do it. But if someone out there wants to, I'm totally here for it. Yeah. You can email a link to... <laughs> Post it to our page. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously the reason that we're coming to this conversation in this direction is that Zuko's mother has disappeared from the scene in ways that... It's fine. It's fine. No, you're super mad about the cliffhanger at They the spend three seasons setting up what happened to Zuko's mother. And then, like, they have a five-episode finale. And they just drop it as, like, the last thing that Zuko says is, Where's my mother? And that's it. Really? I, I, my friends tell me that it's in the graphic novels, but why put it into the main part of the final climax if you're just gonna... Breathe. It's fine. Uh-huh. Sure it is. Anyway. I'm totally fine with it. <laughs> She's not around. But she seems to have been a good mother. To Zuko. To Zuko. <laughs> she seems to have kind of written Azula off, and uh, Azula seems to have taken it pretty hard. And not that she's a great person or anything, but I also I can, I can understand why she's got some baggage. Well, that's Azula's whole thing of, like... You know, my, my mother said I was a sociopath or a psychopath or something, mm -hmm. and I mean, she said I was a monster. I think oh, so it's actually just, oh. like a whole lot worse in terms of the negative valence of wording. Like, I mean, she was right, but that's not the point. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, like, you shouldn't say that. No, you should never say something like that. Zuko's father is around, but has chosen some interesting choices in his fathering methods. Um, I think he probably chose the usual methods for the actual fathering. It's the parenting, but sorry. <laughs> He's chosen some interesting methods for his parenting. I, I think that Zuko's confrontation of him and uh, being like, what the fuck were you doing fighting a duel with, with me? is like, well, that's tradition. It's like, I was 12! Yeah. <laughs> or 14 or something. Yeah. So Iroh obviously has sort of stepped into that role in a in a touching way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is very well drawn. I mean, just in case anyone was unsure after watching the show, Iroh is the best character. Yeah, Iroh's great. Um, he's when... kind of a creepy old man, though. Like He is kind he, of a creepy he's... old man, yeah. Yeah, and that, that's not cool, and I don't want to excuse that and, like, give him a pass. That's not... That's weird and gross. And I'd like that they call it out as such. Yeah. But I think that... Him being so great in other ways, I think it is... I, I don't think that's okay. But Iroh, yes, Iroh yes. is overall amazing, but, you know, no one is perfect, and that is his big flaw, that he really needs to examine some of his assumptions about what's appropriate and boundaries and things in terms of that poor bounty hunter lady who was not very nice but did not deserve to be creeped on, because no one deserves to be creeped on. Well said. Thank you. I, I do like that she totally, like, says that, too. But in a lot of other ways. No, uh, that's no, no, that just sounds apology. As a parent? As a, like, figure within the shitty society he's in. No, that still sounds like an apology. Have I ruined Ira for you? You kind of painted me into a corner here. Sorry. Yes, that is certainly an issue. Um, I think that his, the way he's drawn as interacting within the politics of the world and as a mentoring figure are the good things. Yeah, they're a lot healthier, and certainly some of the healthiest parenting we see. I mean, it is fairly clear that Katara and Sokka's dad is a good parent, but he's gone. Like, he's he's the parent who's in the military and has to go away for very long periods of time, and it's not that he's irresponsible or anything. It's just, you know, it, you're limited in how consistent and good of a parenting influence you can be when you're just not actually around. And, like, their grandmother seems to have been a very nurturing presence. But from what Sokka says, Katara ended up becoming very parentified because her mother had died when she was young and her father had to go to war. And that isn't a healthy situation. It does leave her with a lot of very characteristic issues and baggage that happens to parentified children where it is harder for them to accept discipline, which we do see with her in the firebending era and the waterbending master, which en- ends up being entangled in some ways with the, the sexism of that whole situation, um, but also with her trying to be the authority figure because she had to step into a lot of that role to take care of people in the absence of a full, like, complement of parenting influences, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that, like, just to go back to what you say about um, their father, like, it's interesting that his duty as a father is overridden by his duty to the military mm-hmm. in that situation. Um, I mean, that's in this situation where you're talking about a small tribe, like going away to fight for the safety of your village is part of the duty of a parent, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a parent. I don't know these things. But you get the sort of turnaround on that when they are reunited, but then Sokka and Katara have to leave to go and help with Aang, and it is switched around to, well, yes, it would be great to have our family together, but it's our duty to go and do this other thing now. Yeah. There's something interesting going on with the parenting of Aang, because we don't really see enough of the Airbender Society to answer some of the many questions I have. 
Um, with the exception of an avatar from four generations ago, we don't see any female airbenders or like members of the Air Nomad Society, and that isn't terribly clear why. It's possible that it's a patriarchal society where only men are allowed to do certain things. Or because it's a monastery that might be segregated by sex, so there might be a air temple that is women. But we never see any evidence of that actually spoken, and that we don't see any members of the air tribes that aren't monks. That's true, and they do go to several air temples. That, like I think they go to at least three, right? Do they go to all four? I don't think so. But I think in all three that you do see all of the statues and like carved reliefs and things are of male monks, or at least seem to be of male monks. But they're robed, so it's it's hard to say. Yeah. Like the, some of them might be women, and it just may be ambiguous. And children are children. Like a lot of the people you see at the monastery and like the flashback sort of bits with Aang before the ice, he's a child and there are lots and lots of other airbending children. And some of them might be girls. We don't know. Yeah. I don't think there's any evidence that there is within the story. But it's interesting that we don't see any sort of talk of Aang having parents. Um, I mean, presumably he does. That's usually how that sort of thing works. But the majority of the interactions that we see in the flashbacks are between him and his mentor, whose name escapes me. Mm -hmm. And when he goes back to the air temple and finds that everyone is dead... It's his mentor that he grieves. Mm-hmm. And we, it's very clear like that that was effectively his parent, the person who had like the most direct influence on him and was basically in charge of raising him. Yeah. So that was his parent for all intents and purposes. I did just remember the thing I was going to talk about earlier with perspectives. Okay. Which is the whole scene where Aang is in the Fire Nation school. Hmm. Or that whole episode. The different understanding that he gets of the Fire Nation by seeing their schooling and learning their history. And also the outside culture that he's able to bring to them as well. Well, and even beyond that, also the different perspective of the Fire Nation he has from having been there a hundred years ago. And like knowing where they have come from. Which is hilarious and played for laughs in a lot of ways with his like outdated slang and stuff like that. But it also means he knows like traditional dances that they used to do that they don't do anymore. And things that the people seem to have lost touch with in some ways of their own cultural identity in a lot of ways. As they've been caught up so fully in the prosecution of the war and the building up of their military industrial complex kind of taking full focus of, of everything in the country. And so... He's like, these are traditional Fire Nation dances and um, calling everyone Fireman, which is silly, but... Flamio? Yeah. Is that one of them? I think so, yeah. They're all of the slang that's very fire-related and very dumb, which I really hope caught on with that generation of uh, Fire Nation kids. Well, I, I mean, after, like, the dance party, they probably outlawed, like, that slang in the school. Which, which would make definitely... it way more popular to use. Like, maybe initially, ironically, and then just, like, actually, you know? Yeah. But I think that it's interesting that all the parents that we do see are, are either toxic or absent, or at least mostly absent. Mm-hmm. Except um, for Iroh. Right, but he's not literally a parent. He's... That's true. Um, well, he is a, literally a parent. He... He is. He has a son. His son has died, um, but he will always be a parent. And one of the things that I like that they show is they seem to show, there's a flashback that Zuko has when he's thinking about Iroh, 
That's clearly him and Iroh and his cousin, Iroh's son, playing together when Zuko is a baby. And that definitely shows that it's not just that Iroh has sort of co-opted Zuko after his son has died, like, as sort of a, like, you needing to place his paternal feelings somewhere. Like, he always was attached to Zuko and cared about him and played with him when he was presumably back from the war, you know, periodically, and enjoyed children in general and wasn't just, like transferring feelings in a weird way it's not just that they both had a loss of some sort and found each other and went well you'll do yeah it's not yeah it's not that he was a replacement for zuko's mom and zuko's a replacement for his son i think it's interesting that toff has such an attachment to iroh as well Mm -hmm. um like they had tea together once and that's clearly like a formative point for her because she just hasn't had that sort of support before, I think. Yeah, and I, I like that because it makes a lot of sense for both Toph and Zuko to appreciate Iroh because they know what unsupportiveness feels like, and they both want to be seen for who they are, and particularly Toph, who has spent so long with parents who only saw her disability, and they only saw her blindness, and assumed that it meant limitations that she didn't actually have. And because of that, felt like she, like, they didn't know her because they really didn't. Yeah. Um, whereas Iroh didn't make assumptions about what she could and couldn't do, didn't make assumptions about her potential, and just listened and was just supportive. Very much having this perspective of people should find their own path and figure out what they're capable of and not putting ideas of those boundaries on other people. And that's the same thing he was doing for Zuko, where... And I think that Zuko didn't appreciate it for a very long time, but when he eventually did, you know, it was very powerful. And I think it, of course, comes from where his dad had this very narrow idea of what Zuko was supposed to be. He's supposed to be my heir, who is a vessel for what I want to happen, you know, an extension of me, basically. Which is presumably what fuels his then, like, definitive search for his honor. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that they do handle that well, if a little heavy-handedly, like, I was out searching for my honor, but only I can... Mm-hmm. My dad can't give me my honor because he's kind of a douchebag. <laughs> we mentioned a little bit about duty before, but I think that we're sort of skirting around a conversation of the whole destiny issue at large in this show. I think it's interesting from a storytelling device that they do fairly early on have a episode that sort of addresses the possibility of destiny within this world in that they meet a fortune teller mm-hmm. who seems to run the entire city or town that they're in. Maybe a village, small hamlet, perhaps. And he has a village. <laughs> Where some predictions are made, and one of them is that the village won't be destroyed by the volcano this year, but then the group realise the volcano is going to explode, and they make sure to warn people, and then it does explode, but they save Correct. the village by things, and then and they go, look, the fortune teller was wrong, and People were like, well, no, look, the volcano didn't destroy the village because you stopped it. So she was right. Um, It means that they have an entire episode where they talk about destiny and whether things are in some way predetermined and go, maybe? Yeah, it it does effectively boil down to, you know, trust in a lava type your camel, you know? It's like, just because you have some faith in a higher power or an overarching destiny that doesn't mean that you're off the hook for doing anything like you are a part of whatever that destiny is or happens um and so you know you need to make 
the choices that make sense. It's it's very weird um, and nebulous, which makes sense because it's like the, the whole conversation about destiny and things is, you know. I mean, the fortune teller herself pretty much says that. Yeah. And that fortune teller su- story is sort of backed up by Eero's story. Iro, Eero, I don't know. I'm just going to alter Iro. It's sort of backed up by Iro's story um, with his vision of conquering Barsing Se. Yeah. Um, and the whole thing of, like, he assumed for the longest time that it would be as a Fire Nation general, not conquering it from the Fire Nation as part of the Lotus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that you might have a destiny, but it might not be what you think it is. Yeah. And Zuko was convinced that his destiny was to be Fire Lord, and he was. He ended up being Fire Lord, not in the way that he thought. Yeah. Aang's destiny is fairly obvious. It's interesting that he gets introduced to it too early, mm-hmm. and it does sort of seem to... I wonder what how Aang would have been if he'd found out about it at the, quote, appropriate age. Mm-hmm. It does very much rule him. Like he, It's almost as if he didn't really get to develop outside of being the Avatar before being the Avatar. Mm-hmm. He's still very much in his trickster phase. Mm-hmm. When we were talking before, I know that we talked a little bit about Sokka and Katara with Destiny, and I know an aspect of that was that Katara gets sort of caught up in the fortune teller for Destiny's Yeah, stuff. she sort of ends up ruling, like getting so caught up with what's destined or what's going to happen that she stops making even basic decisions without wanting input from some higher power, higher authority, and stops trusting herself to make choices. Yeah. And that's definitely a problem that you get into when you're relying too much on an externally imposed or dictated idea of destiny. I mean, it's the same trap Zuko falls into, just, you know, writ small. Um, He's like, nope, this is the thing I've got to do. I'm going to be dogmatically you know, adhering to this thing that other people tell me I'm supposed to do because it's my destiny, and completely missing that he has a life that he can make choices with. And with Zuko and Dairo, they do do some interesting things just with the colour scheme with those decisions. Like, I think the point at which Zuko gets sort of freed from his destiny, they very much telegraph, like, uh, he and... Iroh both cut their hair, mm-hmm. but then they start wearing sort of browns and greens for a long time mm-hmm. while they're sort of separate from the Fire Nation and working things out. Mm-hmm. And part of that, I think, is that they're living in the Earth Nation and everyone there wears green because it's very color-coded world. You, um, you had some problems with that, didn't I you? did have some problems with that, particularly with the eye color, because they've kind of set it up. So that pretty much everyone in the different nations, like, has the same eye color within a nation. So, like, all the Water Tribe people have blue eyes. All the Fire Nation people have these, like, hazel, greenish, goldish eyes. And all of the Earth Nation people have green eyes. And Airbenders have gray eyes. Well, at least Aang does. And I think in the flashbacks, they all have green eyes, gray eyes. So then when Iroh and Zuko are, like, in hiding, basically, in the... Earth Kingdom, like, people should freaking know. Like, <laughs> yeah, but how often do you pay attention to someone's eye color? I mean, when everyone has the same color eyes in, like, your community, it's going to be noticeable, I think. But, I mean, you know, maybe it's just they're simplified and it's not actually as universal. I mean, presumably, when we talked about this before the podcast, there has to have been some intermingling, especially over the course of a hundred-year war. Like, there are going to be Fire Nation deserters who end up getting absorbed by communities and, you know, end up 
marrying people in the communities that they have invaded, like that's just a thing that happens with wars, or bring people back from those nations to the Fire Nation as wives or whatever, and like you're going to get some mixing among the yeah. groups. Like that's just how the world works. Also brings that question of like, is bending one of those things where you either can do only one or you can do all of them, but there's never two? Because theoretically, you should have, if it is a thing that you just inherit, you should in- theoretically have a couple people who can fire and earthbender or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the show definitely like never shows us that happening. Yeah. I mean, like, it's one of those things where the most reasonable answer is that like you would have to be. It is some sort of hereditary, and you'd have to be a direct lineage to be able to bend. And that if you were a mix of Fire Nation and Earth Nation, then there's no way that you'll have to be able to do any bending. Because otherwise, as you say, it, you would get that. I mean, otherwise you have to go into the, like, the maybe like they are so siloed and distinct that there's not a viable pregnancy between those two nations. But then that seems... Unlikely. Yeah. So I think it's presumed. I think. I mean, when it comes down to it, I think it is just convenient storytelling. Yeah. Um, yeah. But true. I think it does for a realistic world to have created. I think it does cause some problems. Yeah, it's one of those things. Like the more you think about it, the more it kind of falls apart a little bit. And I think you're right. And it's just like it's somewhat simplified as a children's cartoon. It's a lot of allegory, and it's not really meant to be picked down at that level, or not meant to be realistic to that degree, Um, especially because you do see, like, there doesn't seem to be any sort of taboo of intermarrying or interrelationship, considering, like, Sokka and and Suki, like, have a relationship, and no one seems to find that strange or weird. Like, it doesn't seem to be a thing that's inappropriate. Um, I mean, I, I, I find it a little weird when, like, they're both very much, like, not of age within a kid's cartoon. And the... Well, they're, like, 16 or something. Like, that's a early okay. age to be dating. I mean, it's not like they're getting married. I mean, there's definitely some roses in a tent at one point. That Again, like... they're, like, 16, though, and, like with no supervision. Yeah. So, I, again, I don't find that unbelievable in any way. So, yeah. What was I going with? Well, we were talking about bending. Oh, I, I am I'm quite confident that we're going to receive some form of message that says, ah, but it's all discussed in the graphic novels or in Legend of Korra, and if so, we'll get to that eventually, but it, it's not in the main series that started it. So. Yeah. Going back to what we were talking about with Destiny, like, do you think Aang's destiny and the way it plays out falls into these same ideas of you can't assume it's going to happen the way you think that it's going to? Because he's getting all of these messages from everyone that he's supposed to save the world by ending the war by defeating the Fire Lord, and that everyone seems to think that means killing him, and he knows constitutionally like that he's not capable of murdering somebody even if it is in a battle even if it is for the greater good like he just cannot do that and is simultaneously running toward and away from his destiny the whole time he's running toward figuring something out to end the war which means getting to the fire nation and the fire lord because that's kind of where all the action is happening but also in terms of like his mind and like mentally preparing and planning really letting everyone else drive that process because he is so mentally opposed to what he thinks he's supposed to do and then it turns out when he does actually you know sit down and really think about it does end up figuring it out and figuring out that he can 
fulfilled his destiny to end the war and confront the fire fire lord, but not in the way everyone expects. Yeah. Do you have anything to say about Sokka and destiny? Sokka is interesting because he doesn't so much have a destiny as he has a duty that he's internalized from his community and from the example set by his parents. I don't, and I think that the lack of feeling like he has a destiny makes him feel left out in a lot of ways. And so he's, he spends a lot of the show searching for relevance and, and needing they, some validation for that, you know? They at some point decide that his relevance is, he's, he's a really anal planner. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, we'll put this episode in where he can become a master swordsman. Mm-hmm. And that would be kind of cool. And it is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But it is very much them going, oh yeah, we forgot to make Sucker interesting. But he, <laughs> That's not fair. He, he's interesting beforehand, but... In yeah. a different Yeah, but that we need to have something where it's clear what value he has in the group. And he does have a lot of value in the group. He can throw a boomerang. He can throw a boomerang. But also, like, he's the one who's got a plan. He's the one who thinks creatively and thinks strategically and thinks long term. That Which is really important when the person that you might think would be the default leader of that, which would be Aang, is literally the most immature and the most, like, mentally unprepared to do that. Like, he's just afraid of his destiny. He's afraid of what he will have to become to do it. And so he really does run away from planning and figuring it out a lot. Well, to be fair, like, he does start planning at the start. They do let him lead for a while, but his planning is, I'm going to go over here and ride a really cool fish. Yeah. Well, and that's him, like, that's his planned diversion from his plan, to master the elements. He knows he has to do that first, and I think that he's willing to make a plan to do that because it is a nonviolent part of the plan. It's a preparatory part that involves him increasing his knowledge and ability and skills, and none of that interferes with his ethics. So that's, like, the easy part of the plan. And so I think he's fine with that. But he does build in all of these, like, time-wasting diversions because he's a kid, and he's also scared, and I think prolonging things. In some ways, intentionally, possibly subconsciously. Like, no, I want to enjoy life before I have to insert myself in this war. But yeah, like, his plan is to find a waterbending instructor, and they do that. But, like, once they have found the instructors for Aang... And the once the planning turns, or they once they find out about the comet and like the fire is lit under them to really get a move on on trying to confront the fire lord, Aang does start really stepping back, and it's Sokka who is mostly doing that planning and mostly the one like driving them forward and being like, "No, we have to do this, and we need to be moving on it now." Yeah, there's various parts of Aang's destiny that he isn't terribly happy about. I think that the Part that becomes most direct is when he goes to the guru to learn about the spiritual side of things. And his last chakra needs to be opened, relies on him getting rid of attachments. In particular, his attachment to Katara that he can't do. I mean, removal of attachments has always been a thing for him with, for example, growing up in a monastery where he doesn't seem to have any parents around, presumably as part of there not being any attachments. But it's part of a larger theme, I think, of sort of having to divorce yourself from the world and whether you should do that or not. Mm-hmm. And that definitely comes up in a few different ways generally centered on Aang. And I do think part of why he has such a hard time letting go of his attachment to Katara is that he's already lost so much and he's still a child. He ran away from the monastery even though he knew that 
he had a lot of responsibility that should keep him there because they were trying to take away his attachment to his mentor, who was effectively his parent. And he couldn't handle the idea of that person not being a central figure in his life. He was essentially going to be removed from his parent and put in the guidance of somebody else that he didn't have the same kind of relationship with. And I do think there's an important dimension there where we find out that his mentor, who has been raising him, was a close friend of his past self, Roku. Yeah. And so that's a friendship that has spanned now at le- now two lifetimes. And so he may not necessarily be aware of it, but that is at least a part of how deep and close that attachment is. Yeah. That he's not just been raising him, though he has been raising him, and that's a hugely powerful bond, but this is also somebody that he has been close to for decades before yeah. he was even in the form he knows now. But he comes back to the air temple and literally everyone he's ever known, including his parent, has been killed. and killed a really long time ago. There was nothing he can really do to gain any sort of closure on that situation. Like, there's no one to have a funeral service with him about it or anything. Like, the best he can hope for and best that he gets is, you know, some kind words from the people who are there with him who also do not know him that well at that point. Yeah. Um. And so then, later on, he's asked to let go of the only remaining attachments he has when he's a child who has literally lost his entire community and everything that was familiar to him. It's why he loses his shit so hard when Appa is kidnapped, because that was the last connection he had to his people and his oldest friend to that point, his closest companion to that point, another sentient being who had some of the same connections that he had. Yeah. Um, And it's the only time we see him be violent as himself. Um, I think the other time we see a similar sort of reaction is when they go to the air temple that the mechanist is at. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, it's that sort of perversion of the memory there. Yeah, it's again, it's somebody is trying to in some way infringe upon the last things that he associates with the life he had and the people he loved a hundred years ago. It's so deeply offensive to him. Yeah. Um, and so then when the guru is trying to help him let go of his attachment to Katara and people in general, he can't do it because I think all of his previous loss of attachments have happened violently and tragically and without any sort of volition on his part. Yeah. I feel like I, I keep complaining about things in the show. I, I do want to reiterate that I did do enjoy the show. I think it is well done in a lot of ways. Um, I do find it a little bit strange that the thing that lets him reaccess the avatar state, which he's apparently not been able to get to because he locked his chakra by not giving up those attachments, is to have a rock hit him in the place where he was hurt before, that mm-hmm. I guess knocks something loose. I, I feel like that is intended to allude to the mind-body connection, which is also kind of walked through with the guru, and also is a part of like that injury that he suffers. Um, there is some discussion of, like, acupuncture at different points in the show being valuable. Like, I I do think that it is not as, like, out of left field as it seems. I know I made a joke off of podcast that he is basically a VCR and he's just, like, be elbowed, um, to fix it by the way that that happens. But I do think that it is alluding to that mind-body connection and the fact that your trauma can be locked up in your body 
and also can be released in some ways. Like, a lot of the time, um, people will cry when they get, like, massages and stuff, because, like, a lot of emotional stuff will come up when the tension is released. Um, There's, like, an emotional catharsis that can happen through physical pressure on the body. And I, I do see a connection between that and what we see there. Yeah. It might be a little dramatic, but... I do think it's an important question that does come up in the show, especially because Aang is a monk, and an important idea in Buddhism and Hinduism is, like, this idea that the world is suffering and, in many ways, like, an illusion, and you need to let go of it to, you know, be truly free, and, like, that detaching yourself from the illusion of the world is the goal. Yeah. Um, but then when an Aang has been raised by monks who do believe this and are searching for that sort of detachment and fuller understanding of the universe that's not boundaried by the human experience of the world. But his capacity and his destiny as the Avatar is in direct conflict with that idea because the Avatar is supposed to serve the world. You can't really serve the world and let it go, ignore it completely at the same time. And that is something that he is told by the, is it the previous heir nomad avatar who says that the, I think it is, that the avatar can never do that. Like, that the monks taught you that, but the avatar can never do that. Right, yeah. Because it is conflicting with their responsibility and their purpose for being. They can't fully detach from the world, because if they do, they won't be able to take care of it, you know, in the right way. Yeah. And I think that does relate back to this idea of, like, you can't fix something by running away from it or by deciding it's not important. You have to be in it and stay in it. It's that bodhisattva we were talking about before, this idea that you have to recognize its limitations, you know, the limitations of the world and the system that you're in, but you can't just decide to become part of something else and be separate from it and just leave it behind and let it go, or it will stay the same. If you want it to get better, you have to do something to make it better yourself. Yeah. And I know this is something we've discussed in our personal lives in terms of, like, do we stay in a situation in a system that is toxic and broken in a lot of ways and really fucked up in a lot of ways and try and do what we can to shift it in a better direction? Or do we go somewhere healthier and better for us? And it's a really difficult decision. And yeah. it's, I think that's a thing that a lot of people struggle with right now. Yeah. Especially in the United States. Which I think is a nice place for us to segue to one of our other points, which is uh, Fire Nation exceptionalism. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> we definitely have the Fire Nation as a representation of, you know, I mean, just sort of a large industrial body that feels like it has some sort of colonial right to police the world in whatever way it feels right and has an oversized military. Yep, and justifies its actions in other communities as we're making them better we're bringing them democracy yeah gonna bring democracy to all the places that have oil mm-hmm. what if they already have democracy well we'll destabilize their government yeah there's a great meme for, of zuko's confrontation with his father that has like the fire nation crossed out and like usa written over it and it's like very on the nose and it's just like oof yeah, yeah. zuko saying like yeah, like, we're not better than them, but they hate us for the fact that we are doing this. Like, mm-hmm. And we deserve it. Like, yeah. yeah, we are terrible and they hate us and they should. Yeah. Paraphrasing. We can probably link the meme in the show notes if you haven't seen it. 
And I do think that's something that Iroh must have come to the conclusion regarding a long time ago at some point, because he's part of the White Lotus Society, and so I can't think that he would be blind to the effect of the Fire Nation in other communities and the perspectives of other communities on the Fire Nation during the war. Yeah. Um, it's unclear exactly how long ago um, Iroh's son died and mm-hmm. he left the military, but like that was very clearly like a scales falling from the eyes moment for him. Mm-hmm. Well, I think another th- way that the Fire Nation exceptionalism thing comes up is with the school and the propaganda mm. in there and like the way that they're indoctrinating their kids into thinking that the Fire Nation is, you know, the best and all of this stuff and like all the other areas that they've colonized, which is basically places they have taken over are, you know, shitty backwaters. Because that's Aang's excuse for, like, not knowing things, is that he's like, I'm from the colonies, and same thing with Sokka when he goes to, to train with the Swordmaster. There is definitely this idea that, like, the way that that idea of the Fire Nation being the best is perpetuated is through the way that they teach their kids, is through education. And I mean, that that's very, very true. That's yeah. how you get everyone to think that. And then also, like, the same thing with their, like, their holidays and things like that. Yeah. And the histories... The other part, when Zuko is looking at the histories and there's, like, secret histories yeah, and, uh, like, revisionist history, basically. Like, there's this whole thing about how his grandfather died and it's all very, like, whitewashed and covered up and things and it's not actually what happened and it's essentially, like, they're presenting this version of history uh, that puts them in the best light and makes it seem like they're, as you said, like, spreading good things through the world, spreading their supremacy, like, their greatness throughout the other nations. They're sharing what they have to offer. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting with the uh, propaganda, because they do, just before the finale, an episode that is a play that they see in the Fire Nation that retells the events of the previous two and a half seasons, Mm -hmm. which is clearly done as a sort of recap for you before you go into the final thing. Like, hey, remember how we got here sort of thing? And there's some things about it that are very silly, but it's very strict. Like, it doesn't ring true as a play that would actually be put on in the Fire Nation. Yeah. Because it does paint the Avatar group in such a good light. And, like, it does feel like a loss at the end when Azula and the Fire Lord win. The crowd is all excited, but, like, from a storytelling aspect, that play is not, like, that's a tragedy in that situation. Yeah, it felt it felt like it didn't quite work in terms of the way that they set it up, I agree. Yeah, like, the, the propaganda version of that play would be, like, the Fire Nation complaining because they're like, ah, oh, we're bringing, all, like, all this great stuff to these little lands, and there's this evil avatar group who are fighting against progress, and mm-hmm. they're, like you know, murdering all of our people or something. Like, they yeah. they would demonize the Avatar group. They wouldn't be like, oh, look how funny they are. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree. And, and so it makes it seem unrealistic when the crowd is all supportive at the end when the Fire Lord and Azula triumph over the Avatar, considering that heretofore in the play version, as you say, they're the, the Avatar group's the heroes. Yeah. So. And, like, Zuko is portrayed as a villain. Uh, like, Zuko would be a villain in the play, mm-hmm. but he's still portrayed in the way he is in the series, where he's a sort of, like, comes around, but then there are still people who cosplay as him, 
around the theatre, mm-hmm. which is, it, I know, it's all very interesting. Yeah. I suppose that people cosplay all sorts of people, but... Well, they also, in that play, are trying to comment on, like, media portrayals of real people and things like that, and I think in some ways it would have been even more effective had they gone that full way of, like, this is how the Fire Nation would see Aang and crew. Here is our exiled prince who is trying to defeat Aang, and, like, that's the noble thing for him to do to regain his honor, but, oh, he's been seduced away from that by the evil Avatar who's destroying our fleets and became this giant kaiju fish and destroyed a bunch of our ships, um, and he's so horrible, blah, 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 you know? Yeah. And there's also an aspect to which, like, that the play rings a little too true to the events in some places, where it's like, there's no way that they could have known that. And, I mean, they do have, like, the throwaway line of, oh, it's based on this, that, and the other, and there's the cabbage cellar is brought yeah. up in it. But, like, no, no. Like, there are things that are put in that play that you would only be party to if you were actually one of the members of the group. Anyway, not, not important. Yeah. Talking of propaganda, I think we'd be remiss not to at least mention the... Basing say propaganda machine that's taking place. Oof, yeah. With the Dai Li. Yeah. The concept of an entire city that doesn't know that there is a war going on outside of it, um, and people being reprogrammed to not know about the war if they do find out, seems so ridiculous, except that we know that there is at least one society that is like that. Yeah, it does seem to be a commentary on, like, North Korea and flow of information, things like that, of, like, we don't want to jeopardize the economic, you know, machine of our community because of people being concerned about real problems (laughs) in the world. Right. It's the, as long as we're okay in here, then why does it matter what's happening elsewhere sort of thing. Uh, Oh, there's literally a drill going through the wall? Well, I guess we better do something. I think that could also be seen as related to the idea of like why it's dangerous to let go of your attachment to the world and not try and be a part of things that are going on you know you can't really improve things or make anything better or help if you are ignoring a problem that's going on or deciding that it's not your problem there's also the extent to which there's the complicity of some of the civilians because there's definitely one or two people that they try and talk to about the war, and their response isn't, what war? It's, you can't talk about that. Mm-hmm. So it's like an agreement that they're not going to talk about that, because the Dai Li might come. If enough people knew about that, and there was room for some sort of an uprising or something, but they're choosing to just keep their heads down. So. Yeah, they're accepting those restrictions for the security of living in the city and benefiting from like the privilege of the walls, basically. Yeah. That whole thing, like, the whole bossing say stuff is creepy, like, with uh, Judy, the, yeah. like, handler that is assigned to the Avatar group. Like, she's so creepy. All of them are. And uh, just the secret police situation with the Dai Li, it's just all very unsettling and very Big Brother. And there's uh, some interesting gaslighting that goes on as well. Oh, totally. Like, the whole society is gaslighting them. Yeah. I mean, even just, like, the... Uh... When Judy goes away and a different Judy comes in, uh-huh. and then the other Judy comes back, and they're like, Oh my god, what happened? I was like, No, nothing happened. Okay. Yeah. Wanted to talk a little bit about gender and such in the series. Uh-huh. There's some parts of it that are very progressive, uh-huh. but it's all on this backdrop of very much a patriarchy. Yeah, and there is the, there are a few things in that play that we were just talking about that kind of get at some of those things. Where we have Katara as this, like, swoony, overly emotional caricature of a female lead 
consumed with like a romantic subplot that totally doesn't actually exist in the show, which is in some ways them making fun of these ideas. And then you also have Aang being really offended by the fact that he's portrayed on stage by a woman, which seems weird given that he is very aware of like past lives where he's a woman. That seems to kind of be more him absorbing some of the toxic masculine ideas that Sokka has at the beginning. That he seems to have gotten. We got toxic masculinity into this. But that he seems to have let go of in a lot of ways, you know? Right. But it's one of those like Aang's a 12 year old boy thing, but it's sort of disappointing because of the other stuff we know about Aang up to this point. It seemed a little out of character for him to be caught up in that. I feel like it would have been much more reasonable for him to be upset by a portrayal that misrepresented him in like an ethical or spiritual way. Like if they presented Aang as like a heartless killer or like, you know, even just something like eating meat, Mm -hmm. like something where something about his choices was what upset him, but they go for a very cheap, like, Oh, he's being played by a girl, ha 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 ha, which is problematic in many ways. Yeah. There's a couple of points in this show where, like, I don't think that the LGBT community is really done justice. I acknowledge Legend of Korra is supposed to be very good for representation, and we'll go and watch that and judge that. This was made several years before that, and a lot has changed in the last decade. But the Aang being so upset that he's played by a girl, some of the stuff where it's played for last that Sokka's in a dress... And you know, when Aang is in a dress as the Kyoshi, as uh, or, Avatar Kyoshi. Yeah, and then there's one or two of the pirates that are sort of portrayed as like wearing makeup or some things that are seen as more feminine, and that seems to be kind of played for laughs as well in a way that certainly made me feel uncomfortable. But yeah, that's true. I do think they go for some cheap, shitty laughs in those ways. Also. Even just from a character perspective, like I said, like Aang being offended by being portrayed by a woman, just it just didn't feel true to yeah. the character. Like it didn't seem like the sort of thing that would bother him, given how he'd been characterized for like the entire show. Yeah, it would have made more sense to me if, as it does show, like the part that made him the most upset is the part where he's the kaiju koi fish water spirit thing in the Avatar State. But, like, it would make sense if they mainly focused on that and, like, didn't have that bit at all. Like, if it was more like the reaction Toph has to being portrayed by a big muscly dude of just being like, eh, okay. Uh, She doesn't seem to care. And and that, I think, seems to be more of a reflection of her not caring as much about appearances, you know, which may, again, go back to her being blind and just that not being a part of the world that she takes as seriously or values as yeah. heavily. Well, I mean, the thing is with Toph, like, they they don't target something that she's sensitive about with mm-hmm. the portrayal. Mm-hmm. If they had her, like, walking into things all the time because ha-ha-ha, she's blind, mm-hmm. she would be rightly pissed off about that. Yeah, because she doesn't do that because she's perfectly capable of telling where walls are. Yes. Yeah. She doesn't care about her portrayal at all. Like, And I do kind of wonder if there's an extent to which part of why none of that shit bothers her is that she's had enough real bullshit in her life that she's had to deal with, with being, like, constantly underestimated and held back from doing things that she wanted, that, like, somebody portraying her somewhat inaccurately is whatever, not a big deal. Whereas Aang has had all of this, like, these ideas of himself that everyone has that are not based on him at all, like, 
yeah. have played such a big role in his life. So maybe that's part of it too. But I, but yeah, the him being mad about being portrayed by one thing, it, it's stupid and doesn't make any sense. It makes sense that they would do that, like just from a theatrical perspective. The same reason Peter Pan is usually played by a woman is the same reason that they would presumably have the same thing for Aang. Yeah, the sort of gender expectations that go across the entire continent. Because, I mean, like, all the rulers seem to be men. All the monks... Everyone we see in the Air Temples is male. We have a... The head of the Northern Water Tribe is a man. The Earth King is a man. Um, And then, like, in the Fire Nation, we see Azula get given the throne at the end. And that's the only time we see a female leader. And it doesn't go well. No, she kind of loses it, like, entirely. She cannot handle it at all. She didn't fully have it before, let's Mm -hmm. be honest. But, like, it, it is, like... That, along with a couple of other things, and sort of seems to lose purpose a little bit, does really just tip her over to the edge. But it's interesting to see how those, like, binary ideas of what the responsibilities are of different genders mm-hmm. manages to hurt both sides. Mm-hmm. In the Water Tribe, you have, oh, well, only women are healers, and, he- and women are only healers. At least in the Northern Water Tribe. Right. So, like... Katara isn't allowed to learn waterbending at first, but she's allowed to go and learn how to heal, which means that you're missing out on waterbenders like Katara, who is insanely powerful, but you're also presumably missing out on having waterbenders who are men, who are also good healers, which I can imagine would be useful on, say, the front lines of a war with the Fire Nation. Yeah, definitely. And then there's also the point that comes up with... Is it... I always want to say his name is Jin, but I don't think it is. Yeah, you get it wrong every time. But the firebending master that Aang first starts to learn from, who's very focused on controlling the destructive potential, and, like, says to Katara that he envies her the waterbenders their ability to heal. Like, he would much rather have that ability than the destructive power of fire. Yeah. And there have to be men in the water tribe, in the northern water tribe, who would feel the same way, who would much rather take care of somebody than smash something, you know, or whatever. There is a lot of gender bias in there. And, like, sometimes the, the show, especially at the beginning does seem to be trying to kind of combat it in some ways, but in kind of shallow ways. Like like with the argument between Sokka and Katara early on about, like, division of labor, where Katara seems to have been stuck with a lot of menial, householdy type things, like cleaning and stuff like that. And she's upset about it, and Sokka has a lot of assumptions about what she will do in terms of taking care of and sort of mothering the group. And that does break along gender lines that we're all very familiar with where women still do more than half of household related labor child rearing related labor and a lot of like the emotional and mental labor of keeping track of things and smoothing egos and all of this sort of stuff and that results in them having a whole lot more to do and where a lot of men feel like they're entitled to applause and pats on the back when they like chip in occasionally and get bent out of shape if you don't thank them for doing the dishes or whatever like while the show does kind of seem to try and address that it's not okay to have to just assume your sister will do the laundry or whatever i think that it's done in a somewhat token way and not really followed through on yeah I mean, similarly with Sokka and his, like, sexist ideas of women and women as warriors with the Kyoshi warriors. He initially comes in with these very somewhat heavy-handed but also very realistic, like, dismissive ideas of women as warriors. Yeah. 
And I, I'm not really comfortable with how that resolves either, where, like, he comes to understand that, oh, no, they are powerful warriors, and then Suki turns around and goes from, well, this guy's kind of a jackass, too. But he is cute. I don't know what's going on in her head. But, um, yeah, it's all kind of weird. It is kind of weird. They do build that relationship up later in a much more reasonable way, I should mention that. They do, they do, and, like... I don't know, I'm on the fence about it because teenagers are dumb. And I'm saying that on both sides. Like, in terms of having bullshit sexist ideas, and in terms of looking past bullshit sexist ideas because someone's cute. On both of those ends, I think 15, 16-year-olds are likely to fall into traps like that. And I don't want to, like, write anybody off because they were a sexist ass at 15 or looked past someone having been a sexist ass two days ago. You know what I mean? Especially when they're, like, an intriguing outsider from not my village, you know, and not all of the boring dudes that I'm familiar with, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's not just then, like, also the episode where Katara goes to learn waterbending, which we've alluded to previously, that's also sort of handled in a halfway shallow way where at the end of it, the waterbending master isn't teaching... Katara because he's realized, oh, women are capable and should be able to have the ability to learn whatever they have the potential to learn. It's he's decided Katara is one of the good ones. Yeah. And like she deserves to be taught and it's a waste to not teach her because she's like proven herself worthy or whatever. But there's no evidence like maybe he does go on to teach other girls in the Northern Water Tribe waterbending. Maybe he doesn't though. And I don't really feel like we get enough of an indication that he has actually come to any sort of meaningful change in his perspective, you know? It's a mild problem to me that that character is drawn in as being part of the White Lotus Society. Yeah, because he's so limited in his assumptions. Yeah, it's about looking beyond and, like, across boundaries. But then, like, one of the biggest obvious boundaries to look across, he's like, nope! But... I, in a lot of ways, though, that's pretty realistic if you look at history. And, oh, like, no, I you know, don't disagree. Like, various societies of science and great thinkers and things who corresponded or whatever, but would have laughed at you if you thought that, you know, women should be included or people of color should be included or whatever. But from a messaging standpoint. Oh, yeah, definitely. And also, one of the things that really bothers me about that character is that he then apparently goes and makes up with their with Katara and Sokka's grandmother and marries her because you find out that he and their grandmother were engaged and she broke it off and I think is it implied that she broke it off because he's a sexist ass because I think that's implied I don't remember um but if you, even it's it's not like I would like to think that the person who's raising Katara to be like independent and like wanting to go and learn waterbending and stuff is somebody who wouldn't agree with that but yeah he ends up marrying their grandmother and i we don't actually find out that he's changed his mind and become not sexist yeah yeah it's the one of the good ones bullshit that i'm sure every person of color listening to this is all too familiar with yeah you know the you're so articulate of sexism so i think that's most of the main points we want to talk about i do just want to touch on um azula as a character for a moment before we move on yeah i do think it's a really good point about how she's the only female ruler and it kind of cracks her up yeah i mean she's portrayed as being like i think steadily more and more disconnected from reality Mm-hmm. throughout the series, even to the extent that she and her, like, two childhood friends end up parting ways on, like, their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And 
I've been thinking about, like, that final fight scene with her. We get so many fight scenes with her, like, blowing things up and, and doing weird jetpack things that are very dramatic, but that final fight is so very much different. Like, the scoring for it is very strange. Hmm. Like, it's not scored in a dramatic way. It's almost like it's a mournful or sad way. Hmm. You almost feel sorry for her at the end of that, I think. Mm-hmm. She She's a terrible person who has done terrible things, but I don't know. Like I feel like she is somehow made to seem sympathetic at the end. I think partially because by that point you see that she's kind of been set up to fail and put in a terrible position, and Zuko is in a terrible position in that fight because... That's his sister, and, like, he has resigned himself to having to confront and possibly kill her, but it's clearly not something he wants to do. Like, yeah. when he raises it with Iroh, which is a hilarious scene where he's like, I know what you're gonna say, like, she's my sister, we should find a way to get along, and Iroh's like, nope, she's a monster and she needs to be put down. And he's not necessarily wrong, she's a megalomaniacal sociopath who literally views murder as like the first and main tool that she has like she is incredibly dangerous and has no internal limits on what she is willing to do in the service of her own power and the power of the fire nation so it makes sense that he would say that like no she's way too dangerous to allow to continue to be a threat but it still is a shitty situation for Zuko because that's his sister. Like, they grew up together. Yeah. There were presumably a handful of positive memories that they had together. And also just, like, the clear indoctrination of, like, the family bond that they had growing up. Um, especially because he's not a sociopath. And his feelings for her are, may not be great, but they're certainly not uncomplicated. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because, like, we don't know the full history of her, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's very clear that at a fairly early age, her mother kind of gave up on her. Yeah. And everything we see about their dad doesn't suggest that he is perhaps caring or nurturing. Yeah. And, like, the way that you get his attention is through ruthless power. Yeah, and it's very, I think it's very clearly painted that Azula is her father's daughter. Because... Yeah. Ozai, their father, was the second son, and he was the spare. You know, you get the heir and a spare, and Iroh was the heir, and Ozai was the spare, and Ozai tried to seize power from Iroh by suggesting that their father appoint him as ruler, as heir instead, because of Iroh no longer having secured a bloodline. And his father is like, fuck you, that's not okay, you have to kill your son now, if you think it's so easy to deal with that. Which I I will say is not the right response there. (laughs) No, but it does show that their father at least had a little bit more empathy. Not a lot more empathy, but a little bit more to be like, it's monstrous for you to suggest this. But then he also suggests killing his grandson to make a point, which is fucked up. So the the family has some intergenerational trauma and and dysfunction. Yay, we worked that one in again, too. Um, I hope you're all playing bingo. Yeah, but so you see Azula in exactly the same position Ozai was in. Zuko is the heir. He's the prince. He's older than her, or presumably, because he's the heir, and it goes in order. Is he? Yeah, he's the he was the heir until he was banished. 
Interesting. I assume that she was older, but maybe it's just that it's a patriarchal system and he would still be the first. It's possible, but either way, he was the heir designated, whether that was because he was the boy or because he was older. They seem to be of a similar age regardless. And so also by her father's example, she knows the only way that she's going to be viewed as important in that family is if she can get Zuko out of the way. Yeah. And she does end up setting up the discrediting of Zuko when they're kids, because she tells Zuko about the, you're going to get, grandfather said that you have to die or whatever. Like, she tells Zuko about that, and Zuko is, like, trying to reassure himself that she's lying because she lies a lot. But his mom then realizes what's going on with that, and that's how that whole thing ends up happening. Yeah. Where he ends up taking over. But the... Like, she's basically trying to do the same thing to Zuko her father did to Iroh. Yeah. Of get him out of the way so she can be in charge. And I wouldn't be surprised, it, it does seem to be implied to me, that part of that is she was sidelined really young, like you're saying. Like, her mom wrote her off, possibly because she, you know, showed some signs of being a sociopath. She seemed to be a compulsive liar. I mean, that's something that Zuko, at least, seems to have already internalized when he was young, that Azula always lies. And her mother seems to have given up on doing anything about that and may have decided it wasn't worth doing anything about that because it doesn't matter. She's not going to have a lot of influence. She's the spare. And her father probably didn't pay a lot of attention to her until she started distinguishing herself as a firebender because he didn't seem to have any use for anyone unless they're of use to him. I think it's telling that, like, we don't see his face until season three. Mm -hmm. Like, he's always this sort of distant figure, even when you're seeing it from Zuko's point of view. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think that, like, that final scene where, like, she's then being chained up and is just, like, sort of impotently, like, pulling against her chains, there's so much sheer desperation in it Mm -hmm. that, like, I don't know, it's just kind of sad. It is. It is very sad, and I think that that's intentional. I think that there is a concerted, like, overtime effort. Like, yeah, she's an antagonist, and she's a shitty person, but I do think they've made an effort through telling the story of her and Zuko and their parents and the family they were raised in that she became who she is because it was the only way she saw to be relevant and have any sort of approval from her father, who is now her only remaining parent after her mom gave up on her and then disappeared. And that's exactly the same thing that drives a lot of Zuko's dysfunction for a long time, is he's also desperately seeking the approval of a distant and uncaring parent. Yeah. Got a note here about sort of like the spirit monster type things that we meet. Just whether we wanted to say anything about those. And we briefly mentioned the weird owl spirit thing. There's also the face stealer Mm. who shows up in like one and a half episodes. That one really does seem like it's set up to do more with and then they just didn't. Yeah. Well, like after Aang like has the meeting with it, like there's a I'll be seeing you soon sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Whether that means Aang or like some future avatar is hard to say. Yeah. It's possible that it shows up in Legend of Korra. I guess it seems to be a vaguely immortal being. So yeah. Well, it's a spirit, so I think those are immortal beings, and that it's it does come up again when he is conferencing with his past cycle, like the the previous four avatars. Um, I think it's a, the Water Tribe avatar before him that says, you know, his the love of his life was taken by the face dealer, and that led to him not being decisive or whatever, not 
I think it was his indecisiveness that led to that. Right. It's how he viewed it, at least. Sure, yeah. But it was part of his story about why you need to be decisive and, like, yeah. ha- the biggest mistake he ever made, etc., was the context of the face dealer. But it's set up as this really, really creepy and really powerful thing that then they don't really do much with. So I wonder if they did have plans and then didn't get to them. Yeah. Or whether people were like, that. that's kind of creepy, just don't do that anymore. <laughs> so I think that's the main points that we wanted to talk about. But I think the big question is, the Fire Nation's been waging a war on the world for a hundred years, and they've done a lot of damage in that time. You can put new leadership on that, but what would need to happen for that relationship with the world to be repaired? Like, what do reparations look like in this context? Quite possibly. I do think that is an important question, and I think that that's not a question that can be answered easily. Like, I think there's a lot of humility that has to go into that, and it's more of a process than a specific set of things that, like, you need to check off of a list. Mm. And I think that needs to be a participatory and a humble process, at least on the... Like, it needs to be participatory in terms of the communities, and it needs to be humble on the part of Zuko and the Fire Nation representatives that he will have to engage in that process because he can't do it all by himself. Honestly, I think he would have a whole lot of work cut out for him because he's head of a huge complicit machine, a military industrial complex of of a country that has been profiting and living off of a war machine for a hundred years. The Fire Nation at this point does not have anybody who knows any other way to exist in the world and has grown up on the propaganda that the war was a good thing that was spreading greatness to other communities. Yeah. So it's going to be really hard to change that culture and that perspective on the world. And he's going to need a lot of like-minded people in the Fire Nation to do it. And that is going to be hard to find because all those people have probably been stamped out. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the issues that I had with uh, the show from a political standpoint is that, oh, Zuko is now going to be cranking because he won a fight against Azula. Will he be able to do anything? I mean, effectively, the other party owns the Senate. Um, mm-hmm. Ozai had a whole bunch of generals in place, and they were his right-hand men. That's not what you need if you're going to demilitarize. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, like, what does a military that's currently spread out across the entire world do when it's no longer needed as a military? And you can change schooling plans so that you teach an honest history of what the Fire Nation did the last hundred years, mm-hmm. but what about the people who already have gone through any education system and are now out in the world with those opinions? I mean, we don't need to see how some of the fire generals act, and not even the generals, just like the officers and stuff, to see the contempt they have for other people. Even other people within the Fire Nation. Like, the whole reason that Zuko ended up in a duel with his father is because he challenged the plan his father was signing off on to use raw recruits as cannon fodder, like put them in a position where they were definitely going to die and just didn't feel like it was right to waste lives in that way. And that was their own people, let alone the view that the generals have on people of other nations who they were actively at war with for hundreds of years and have spent generations othering and dehumanizing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very optimistic end to have Zuko put into power and him go, we're going to progress and change things, and I want that to be what happens, Mm -hmm. but it's going to mean completely reforming the government and finding a way to get the people on your side when you say, okay, so we've been fighting a war for the last hundred years, the leader of our nation has been defeated, Mm -hmm. so there's far too much room for people to make up a narrative of being the losers and like needing to regain that power. 
And then you've got to say, okay, we all need to stop being warriors. We need to learn about what was really been going on. And we need to, I mean, you say reparations, we need to help the rest of the world rebuild what we did. Mm -hmm. That's a tall order. It is. And it's interesting because there are a few parallels in the real world about this. Like, you know, there's Germany after World War Two in terms of trying to you know, move away from the legacy of Hitler and the Nazi party being in control and, like, teaching their history in a transparent and unflinching way of, like, we, as a country, did horrible things. Our leadership espoused these ideas and were responsible for the deaths of millions of people, and that's terrible, and we can never, ever let anything like that happen again. But that was only a movement that lasted like a tiny fraction of that time. So if you're considering like a hundred years of essentially like a hundred years of fascism and colonization or, you know, neo-colonial mindset, I mean, it's it's very similar to the position the U.S. is in right now. We're just like, let's just stop. We're terrible. And like, we need to be honest with ourselves about that. Like our leadership isn't honest about that. Yeah. We've been running away from our legacy for a really long time. Yeah, and I mean, with it being 100 years, there's... I mean, they seem to take some liberties with how old people can be. Bumi must be at least 110. Mm -hmm. Assuming that the 100 years is a literal 100 years, not, Mm -hmm. well, it's been 90 years, so, well, just call it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, there's not anyone that we see in the Fire Nation who was alive before the war to have an opinion on the Fire Nation from before. And as you say, there's secret histories that have been kept away from the people, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very difficult. I, I think that's going to be a really hard process to do on a top-down way without being just as autocratic and authoritarian as Ozai and Sozin were, you know? I really hope that Zuko pulls in a lot of help from Iroh, mm-hmm. and that Iroh is willing to help on that. I mean, maybe the Lotus Society can help to some degree, mm-hmm. because Zuko, Zuko has come into this with enough power to defeat his sister and idealism Mm -hmm. but not a whole lot of knowledge about policy yeah or (laughs) really any connections in the political movers and shakers of the fire nation because he's been in exile for several years prior to that point and the problem he's going to run into is that he does have various powers like he has become a powerful firebender so it's possible that he could beat various generals Mm -hmm. but to do so it might be possible that he'd have to have a sort of show of force against mm-hmm. a general that was disagreeing with him to get mm-hmm. the rest of the council on his their, on his side. But that's sort of the opposite of the direction things are supposed to be going in. But it honestly, it sounds like the most in-world, like the most logical thing that would happen, like combination of the way humans work and the way this world has been set up and the way the Fire Nation has been established. Like that, uh, what do they call it? Agakai? Yeah, the Agakai process does seem to be a central part of how those kinds of disagreements and conflicts are resolved. And he may, and I wouldn't be surprised if in world he ended up having to just defeat challenger after challenger because they wanted someone more like the old school in charge. So that things could continue on the way they had been, even if they weren't prosecuting the war um, in the way that they were before. So they were still had the same kind of power structure and perspectives that he would just, end up with that and eventually i think it wouldn't be surprising if the generals tried to just orchestrate a military coup to maybe install azula or something 
um, if she's still alive, which it seems like they probably do keep her alive. So yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Like in world, I don't see the Fire Nation just being like, oh, you're the new Fire Lord and you have a completely different idea of what we need to be doing. Awesome. Totally yeah. on board. Like I just don't, you know, I don't see it being that easy for him. It was going to be a lot of work, certainly. And that's just like in terms of how he's supposed to get his nation on board. But in terms of making reparations to the other communities, I think that's going to be a series of long, hard conversations with those other communities to see what they actually need and that participatory engagement. Otherwise, it will be empty. Yeah, certainly. And there's going to be need to be a lot of trust building as well. Yeah, and I do think the White Lotus Society will help a lot with that. And the fact that he has close ties to people in all of the other nations is going to help a lot with that, especially since they're starting to get to an age where they would be able to be like their adults and can sort of step into more authoritative figures. And I think that also um, Aang as the Avatar will take on a much more of an ambassadorial role. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, and certainly what you see in some of the flashbacks with Roku is him sort of going everywhere, talking to different people and sort of having a hand everywhere. Yeah. One of the things I do wonder about, though, is, like, the imbalance in terms of the Aaron nomads having been eradicated. Like, there there doesn't seem to be a path forward on doing anything to repair that, and that might be intentional. Like, some things you can't take back, and you can't fix, and you can't repair in any way. Like, maybe the Aaron nomads never come back. Maybe there is a small pocket of surviving ones or who you know maybe there are refugees who just haven't come out from hiding in other nations yeah. um the same way iroh and zuko were in bossing say yeah. refugees from the fire nation basically maybe there are some and maybe in the absence of a persecutorial force they might come back and reestablish their community but it would be very hard when the, if they're scattered like that you know the loss of traditions and things like that i mean then you're in a position where you know, you haven't been able to maintain your cultural identity, there's the whole assimilation problem there. And like, is there a way to rebuild that community? And like, that's yeah. a difficult question. Well, that, that's one thing is that like because of how long it's been, like Sozin mm-hmm. wiped out the air nomads, mm-hmm. which means that like anyone who's a refugee is the child of a refugee at this point. Mm-hmm. That notwithstanding, we'd have to answer the question that we had earlier about whether what what happens with interbreeding yeah yeah maybe ang just needs to have an awful lot of kids and hope there's no genetic issues down the line yeah i mean it really is difficult and like at that point he's the only person living who remembers the culture of the air nomads like from actually being a part of that community i mean boomy obviously would remember by knowing ang but he would know having known someone there not not actually it's not the same so yeah that that's something that like you might just never be able to be repaired and and there are parallels with that and the slave trade in terms of communities and people who will never know the historical communities and cultures that they came from because they have no way of finding what that was i think that's something that's been taken away that you can never get back yeah so i think that that answers the big question but i think the bigger question is what is the cringiest moment in the show? I always love asking about the cringiest moments in the show because they're always hilarious discussions. I don't know what the cringiest moment is. Uh, the moment that bothers me the most that I realize that we didn't talk about is uh, the like very end scene where they have Aang and Katara get together. And like <sighs> they they have them like standing in front of a sunset and there's that moment where it's like, 
oh, they're going to leave it there. And like, it will just be like kind of a question of what whether that works out or not. Because there's a lot of reasons it might not work out. Really, they're only pushing them together because they're like, they've been traveling for a long time where they're literally the only two single people they're not related to. And then, like, they cut forward and then they like, nope, we're going to have an explicit makeout session for you to watch of these two early teenagers. I don't know. Aang and Toph could have had a thing. Like, they're not related. Right, but, like, they'd set up the, oh, maybe Aang and Katara in season one before Toph was on the scene. So. That's true. Yeah. Toph doesn't have a romantic interest. I think that's unfair. I don't think it's unfair. I think it's important that not all female characters and not all characters in general have to have a romantic interest. Yeah, like, it's problematic because she's... She's also really young, like... Yeah. What do you think's cringiest moment? I feel like there were other points during the show that I definitely, like, paused it to go, ah, this is going to be cringy, but I don't remember what they were as much, because that, like, I don't know, I just... I think all the romantic stuff. Yeah. I... Except some of the Sokka and Suki stuff later is not yeah. cringy, like, when they... is more established, as you mentioned before, but, like, pretty much everything else, like, all of the stuff about Aang agonizing over Katara is cringy and also oh you know it's not it's kind of cringy but it's also just adorable like Zuko like rehearsing and stuff about like trying to talk to the people in the avatars group it's a little cringy but it's also really adorable <laughs> yeah no that that I just found kind of charming oh um, you know what I got it Azula talking to that dude on the balcony oh no <laughs> we'll rule the world or whatever she says and it's just like oh my god yeah, she's that's... like trying to be normal so hard and failing so hard. Yeah, that is kind of terrible. To go back to the romance thing, like I don't, I don't have any particular problem with the Zuko May romance. Mm. I, I do just like the the Katara and Aang one. I just like that. Mm. I don't, I don't know if it's just that I find both of them mildly tedious as characters, but just like I don't know. I don't really buy the romantic relationship between them. It feels far far too much like Aang has decided he really wants to be with Katara and. What is Katara going to do? Not date the Avatar? <laughs> I, I agree with you. It feels a little forced. And I guess, yeah, thinking about Zuko and May, like, I don't think their stuff's cringy. It's really just the Aang and Katara stuff. And also the Katara and Jet stuff. Like, really, all of the romantic potential stuff with Katara is cringy. Yeah. Um, but the uh, the May and Zuko, like, I like that they have, like, a weird, but still, like... I don't know, somewhat natural teenage, like, they're the outsider teens romance, yeah. where it's like they bond over being disaffected. If they were in this world, they would have met in a goth club. Yeah, exactly. And, like, they would be, they would have the relationship problems that come from, like, trying to be too detached. And that's what they have. And that's yeah. a real type of relationship that I have observed. Yeah. And, like, I've not been in that specific one, but I have definitely known people who were. And it is a thing. <laughs> like, that yeah. that wasn't cringy. That was pretty believable to me. I'm aware that there is a group of people who think that Zuko and Katara should have got together. I don't think that should have happened either. But I, I do don't know. Like, not at the point during the show. Like, I could see that maybe potentially being a thing down the line. Yeah. But at the point that the show takes place, I... I see why that doesn't happen. I think it's not that, there. I think it might be a preferable pairing to Katara and Aang, but yeah. I don't think it's a good pairing, so. Yeah. I don't know. I I feel like all of these characters have a lot of growing up to do. Yeah. So it's very hard to kind of say at least for me, like what makes the most sense. It's possible um, that I ju just don't find the like romantic stories of 14-year-olds to be terribly compelling. Maybe it's just on me. Yeah. Okay, I think that answers the bigger question. Do you have any fun facts? I do. I do have some fun facts. One is that the actor who voices Appa, 
which there is totally an actor who voices Appa, I feel like this is very important, is also the same actor who voices uh, Lion in Steven Universe, which is just great. I just think that's wonderful. It's kind um, of beautiful. Yeah, and like, I think he also voices like some other like animals or you know non-vocal, non-speaking characters. Non-human. Yeah. Uh, um, well, it's not even just non-human, but like people who don't or like characters who don't talk. You know. Right. In uh, different stuff, um, and that's D. Bradley Baker. He's Klaus in American Dad. Klaus does speak. Yes, but as well, he also voices Animal in the Muppet Babies. Okay. I just thought that was fun that he's also the voice of Lion. Another f- interesting fun fact that I had is like at one point when we were watching the show, you were like, I think that the firebender in the intro is Azula. And you're right. But I also looked and the waterbender is Master Paku of the Northern Water Tribe, you know, the sexist ass. Oh, yeah. Um, that we were talking about before. The earthbender is Sud, who I think is one of the opponents of Toph in the earth, mm. um, like the underground earthbending ring or whatever. And the and it was also actually an original design for Toph, but it was scrapped. Huh. They were going to make that character like a muscly 16-year-old like jock-type character to be like a foil to Sokka, but then they didn't, and they just used the character design for other stuff. And the airbender is Aang, which you definitely uh, probably already noticed. But yeah, you were right. It was Azula, but the stuff with Toph is interesting. Also, Zuko was uh, not actually originally part of like the show. Like It was one of the last characters that they wrote it. Huh. Yeah. It would be um, a very different show without him. Yeah, I agree. Like apparently, like they were just going to have the Fire Lord be the main antagonist, but he would just be on the throne, and it would be hard for him to really be present in the action. So they wrote Zuko in instead, which I think ended up being a very compelling like counter arc as yeah. a character arc to sort of parallel Aang's journey. Yeah. So I have a few casting ones that I sort of have mentally noted as we've been going through the show, mm-hmm. and one that I saw posted as a meme. There is a random prison guard that shows up in the third season with Iroh. There's a woman that brings him food and is clearly being nicer to him, mm-hmm. um, that he recommends like stays away when he's going to break out, mm-hmm. who is voiced by Serena Williams, the tennis player. Huh. Um, That's a bit random. How do you end up being like famous in a way that leads you to having odd voice acting cameos like that because we watched uh spider-man into the spider-verse and saw that like post malone has like a random cameo voice in that it's just like how does that even happen i think you just get to a level of famous where you just go to your agent you go i like this show make me on it (laughs) (laughs) maybe and at a certain point like if someone calls and's like hey serena williams wants to be in your show can you write her apart? You go, sure, why not? <laughs> so one that I know that we called out when we were watching the show, and it's a fairly distinctive voice, is George Takei has a cameo as a warden in one of the earlier episodes. And then the actor that plays Toph in the play mm-hmm. is voiced by John DiMaggio, <laughs> who played Bender in Futurama and uh, Jake in... Adventure Time. Adventure Time. The Earth King is voiced by Phil Lamar, who does... All of the voice acting, he voiced uh, Hermes in Futurama, and is also in Pulp Fiction. He is Marvin, who gets his head blown off in the back of a car when John Travolta accidentally like shoots. Uh, okay. Oh, spoilers for Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I think I, I think I remember that uh, who that was in that. Another thing is uh, Scott David Menville, who voices Robin in Teen Titans. 
also provided several voices in Avatar, including um, a Ganjin tribesman, like one of the feuding groups, the actor version of Sokka, and several a bunch of other random characters, which I thought was interesting. Like, I definitely could tell that it was him as the Ganjin tribesman. Like, I called it out while we were watching. I was like, that's Robin from Teen Titans. But I did not pick up on it on the other one, so that surprised me. Hmm. I have three more that I'll go through fairly quickly. Long Fang, the head of the Dai Li, mm-hmm. is voiced by Clancy Brown. Oh, yeah, I could hear that. Yeah. Who people might know from God, everything. Carnival. Highlander. Uh, he's the warden in Shawshank Redemption. He's the detective in the video game Detroit Become Human. Yeah, he's in a lot of things. And he, he plays somewhat creepy, badass people a lot. Yes, he he tends to play like... Quite unpleasant characters. Mm-hmm. And then Commander Zhao, who I earlier referred to as Commander Khan, and I, I'm sorry, um, I don't know why I called him that, is voiced by Jason Isaacs, who has done so many things, but is probably best known for playing Lucius Malfoy. Mm. Yeah, um, I do remember you saying that while we were watching it. And then the last yeah. one is this lesser known guy, voices the Fire Lord, this guy called Mark Hamill. Really? Yep. I would not have known that. Mark Hamill's just great. He does all the voices everywhere, though. Mm-hmm. Did he retire from doing the Joker? Yeah. I think that... I, I don't know if it's totally off the table, but I don't think he's interested unless they're doing something really interesting. I feel like he did um, Killing Joke and was like, that's my last one. Mm-hmm. I think he said, I think he had like pretty much given up on it and then was like, I'll come back and do it if uh, if you want to do the Killing Joke, but otherwise... Mm-hmm. So they were like, oh, I guess we'll do Killing Joke. <laughs> Okay, I, th- I think... Is that it for fun facts? I think so. Uh, do we have any feedback, follow-up, or late thoughts? Well, you have the look... say we did, and I can't fucking remember... You know, you should really write things down. It really helps me. <laughs> Didn't I have a note about... Was it the refrigerator thing with The Last of Us? No, you said that. Well, I said it and we put it as a blooper, but yeah. we didn't actually talk about it. I think that you, like, really used one or two of them. Um... For, for those curious, there is a ongoing thing where about a day or two after every episode, Charlene goes, oh, we should put this in Last Thoughts. And then the next time we record, she's forgotten what it is. Every time. Yeah, every time. It's very frustrating. On that note, you can find our social media in the show notes below. If you have any questions, comments, or things you want to tell us, you can email us at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. We are looking into some other things that we can do alongside the podcast. We're probably going to set up a YouTube channel where we can be posting the podcast there as well, so people who don't want to use podcasting apps can still listen to us. And we're going to be putting a poll up on our Facebook page to see just sort of what other things people might be interested in. We're thinking about maybe doing some live streams of the podcast or maybe just some other conversations, maybe trying to put some videos together, sort of extra things on the YouTube channel. So go over there and check it out. We should have it posted by the time that this episode is live. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you will join us next time. As usual, we will be spoiling the entirety of the three seasons of Avatar The Last Airbender. Yep, we always spoil the three seasons of Avatar The Last Airbender in every episode. We spoil. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's just, that's what it sounds like you meant. <laughs> like. <laughs> so grumpy at me. You done? <laughs> now your expression is really funny. Shadow's finally settled down. Can you? <laughs> So we'll start off with a brief summary of what happens in Avatar. 
Uh, it starts off what, with... What, the James Cameron film? It's annoying, isn't it? Oh, hush you. 